Welcome to the Daring Mighty Things podcast, a show about the dreamers and the doers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, also known as JPL. In every episode, we try to give you a behind-the-scenes look at the lives and journeys of the folks working on unique missions in support of humanity's need to explore the universe and the stars. I'm your host, Patricia Lenny. And I'm your other host, Lenny James. And before we get started, we wanted to take a moment to remind you to follow us at NASA JPL Careers on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're ready to dare mighty things, check out open opportunities at jpl.jobs. JPL joins the metaverse. Meet Dr. Chris Matman. Is today's podcast script written by ChatGPT? Maybe. You'd never know. Our guest today has over 20 years of experience leading teams working on artificial intelligence, machine learning, and virtual reality. He was working on AI chatbots long before they were writing your English papers. Today, we're joined by Dr. Chris Matman, who serves as Chief Technology and Innovation Officer, as well as the Division Manager for Artificial Intelligence at JPL. He has planned and developed the architecture for a variety of NASA missions, and he is JPL's first principal scientist in the area of data science. His cutting-edge work on automated data processing technologies has helped identify and track bad guys in the dark web. Currently, he is focused on bringing the metaverse to JPL and how to bring JPL to the metaverse. Chris holds bachelor's and master's degrees in computer science and received his PhD for computer science from USC. Chris, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Lainey and Patricia. Um, I was hoping that you would say follow us on TikTok, too, or is that just what the oh, cool kids do? I know Lainey is dying to start a TikTok oh, yeah. channel. So. You know, um, I am just so good at, you know, dancing and all of the great things. Um, no, as, as a matter of fact, I'm going <laughs> to hand it over to my 11-year-old, and she's going to be JPL's TikTok ambassador. Can you imagine, you know, doing uh, little dance videos in the high bay? I think it would be great, actually. It, it would be great. It, People are going to do it whether we do it or not. Exactly. So. I think they are doing it already. Listen, <laughs> my family gets mad every time. I do the floss once I learned how to do it, and now it just embarrasses them. So I just, I don't. Lainey, I'm still stuck on the Macarena, but but keep going. <laughs> okay, okay. Chris is dating himself. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe we all are. Yeah, I don't maybe know. we all are. So Chris, tell us exactly what do you do here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I generate TPS reports. No, well, yeah, yeah. where's my red stapler? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I haven't been paid in six weeks. No, um, I... I run the innovation. Colin, edit that out. Edit that out. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, edit that out. Um, I, I'm the chief technology innovation officer. I run the innovation division. I've got the coolest job in the world at JPL. Um, I get to kind of lead the next generation of innovators in artificial intelligence, data analytics, data science, data visualization. And so we um, do a, lot, a number of projects, both for the institution, uh, within IT, we work and partner with science uh, mission folks, robotics. Um, we kind of just stick our noses wherever we can get it and help people innovate and accelerate, um, I'd say, their business processes. So what is that like for you on a day-to-day basis? Like what, what's a typical day for Chris? Yeah, well, uh, great question. I mean, I would say a typical day is waking up, kind of checking uh, the tech trends, doing a little reading of, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, looking at what's kind of hot in the news, figuring out how to apply, suss out those technologies and and where we're at in terms of our roadmaps and, you know, in terms of curating them at JPL. Do we need more people 
that understand next generation databases? Do we need more people that understand virtual reality? How are we deploying that? Um, what do the missions need? What does uh, the EC need, the executive council, in terms of you know making their next presentation so that we can get the funding we need to understand the Earth and Mother Earth and explore the universe, uh, those types of things. And so it's curating those, Lainey. Um, it's curating, I'd say, those, those roadmaps, understanding kind of where we're at and where we need to be. And I think that's one of the really interesting things, right? It's not just about understanding the work that you're doing now, but trying to really anticipate based on the world out there, the technology, how that's evolving, how that can be applied to the work that you're doing at JPL, right? How to say, okay, I'm seeing other organizations are doing this. I think maybe we don't do it now, but should we be doing it in the future? So Yeah. The thing I would say kind of associated with that is like the famous Jurassic Park uh, meme. You know, it's like Dr. Ian Malcolm, you know, we stood on the shoulders of others and recreated dinosaurs, but uh -huh. should we have? And so the should is the really kind of important, I would say, context that you're kind of bringing up is, you know, not mm. all technology that's out there. JPL needs, you know, uh, we are undergoing this big evolution, you know, throughout the institution. I would argue we are becoming a software institution. And, you know, that might, I'd say, it might, you know, rub some people the wrong way. I think that have made a long career in history here of thinking about how to build hardware instruments, missions, and things like that, but rapidly just to kind of keep up with outside industry, to keep up with the world and the pace of technology. We are really evolving to do a lot more software. We just had a software summit uh, here at the lab uh, that had EC participation and throughout the lab, all of our principles and organizations related to that. So yeah, we're becoming a software company. And, and that's one of the things you might look at us and should we, you know, but it seems like we should. So Well, I would say absolutely in that because with your work with artificial intelligence is that the hardware now these days is starting to run itself, whether it's self-driving cars or um, hello, self-driving rover on Mars, you know, that that we have. And that's where that software and that development comes in. Of course, you know, the, the question is, is, you know, the should is how far do we take it? And I think you bring up a really good question. Yeah. Yeah. For me, at least, um, there's this sort of like understanding to, you know, quick kind of breakdown. I was like, well, Earth to Mars, uh, you guys do that. There's this whole kind of in between like the deep space internet and mm -hmm. everything that, you know, and everyone assumes here, you know, I don't know about your internet connection at home and, and things like that. There's a lot of hops along the way uh -huh. here on Earth uh, that make it fast, resilient and all of that. One of the things that we have to deal with just related to that, there aren't that many hops between here and Mars. And so we're really relying on really slow, I won't call it like dial up, <laughs> you know, Everyone knows what dial-up is. Anyways, uh, look it up. Google it. But, uh, you know, anyways, we've got that type of connection to Mars. And so because of that, we are increasingly becoming more reliant on the next generation of hardware so that we can do more autonomy on the rover so that we can have it operate more on itself. What does that require, Lainey and Patricia? Yeah. It requires uh, software. It requires software. It also requires fundamental investments from the nation, which we're happy to see some of them being made. But to build really a future deep space Internet requires partnering with commercial industry to do things that we don't do or isn't in our mandate that we partner with them on and, and things like that. So kind of um, going back to that, right there, you, you have been here for 21 years. I don't know if we mentioned that. So you have been here quite a long time. You've worked on a lot of things. You've seen a lot of things change in the federal industry as well as in the private industry, right? So if we go back a little bit towards the beginning of, of your journey here at JPL, 
maybe talk to us a little bit about that. What was JPL like back then? What were some of the challenges that you guys had? Yeah, yeah. I remember the first cave paintings that we did. And um, <laughs> We are older than NASA, by the way. JPL has been around. 85 yeah. years. I am sure the producer, somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. So um, you're not that. kidding. I mean, maybe, you know. Someone, you know, Lainey and Patricia are great. They got to they gotta put a handle on me. I need a whole, uh, someone, that kind of a watcher, you know, anyways, or I'll just keep throwing in the jokes. No, it's... Listen, we had to compete with dinosaurs for parking back then. You know, it was a, it was a tough situation. It really was. I remember the lava flowing out of the Cretaceous, um, yeah, you know, yeah. but no, uh, yeah, I started in 2001, January, I remember that uh, very kind of deeply. Uh, it was... Everyone talks about coming into JPL nowadays, and just to kind of relate, it's like, oh, you know, we we do a lot of hiring in the innovation division, and you know, it's like, oh, hi, I've got all these competing offers. What's going on? I said, JPL's a process. It's much faster than it was back then. I remember talking to someone for six months, you know, and uh, yeah. So our HR has been built up very much since then. They're great. They're moving a lot faster than it used to. So yeah, it took six months back then for me to come on. I was a I was a student at USC. Uh, on messaging boards at night, you know, trying to find a job, you know, so that I could support myself. Um, first generation college student, uh, you know, first generation for in my family to go to college and and graduate. But yeah, you know, and self-funded, you know, loving family. The sweat equity in our family was love. It wasn't dollars, you know, and cents. So, um, you know, kind of related to that was really just, you know, back in 2000, looking for an opportunity to be a programmer, and contribute to something. And so found on a message board, Dr. Rob Raskin, famous atmospheric scientist here at the time, was looking for programmers that would work uh, on a project with Caltech with databases. Um, got hired in January 2001. The world was changing. Um, yeah, so so back then, you know, 2001, we were undergoing or starting on the precipice of really this era that I like to call everyone becomes a censor. Uh, iPhone came out, I think, in 2005, 2006, or around then. And what we were seeing similarly, and that was in the commercial industry, you know, everybody had these like amazing digital cameras. And really, all of that content and data really was sort of the first waves that were about to wash over us for things like social media and all that. But similarly, in science, it was the exact same way. In 2006, um, we had Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and it had a 12 gigapixel camera on it called HiRISE, uh, which is built by ASU and Malin Space Systems. And HiRISE taking these 12 gigapixel images, we basically estimated within probably, I'd say a few years, we would collect uh, on order of 10 times more data than we had collected over 40 years wow. in uh, of, all planet, of all the missions in planetary, just from that HiRISE instrument on MRO. And so that, you know, that story, it sounds a lot, you know, just for the people that can't see uh, Patricia and, 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 and Lainey right now, you know, they're shaking their heads and nodding. <laughs> there was a lot of that that was sort of happening in all missions right. at the time. You know, the other one that I sort of cut my teeth on was the Orbiting Carbon Observatory that within the first three months would collect about 150 terabytes of data. And just to kind of scale that, um, it would move us from after 10 years collecting, I would say, about a DVD's worth of data into a mission within its first three months that it would generate about 10 to maybe order 100,000 DVDs within wow. the first three months, just to give you an idea. So that was happening in Earth, planetary, heck, it was happening in biology, you know, at the NIH. But in particular for us, that required a lot of sort of 
you know, I, I kind of got thrown in the fire. It's like, here's the way we build missions before in ground data processing systems, Chris. Try that on these new missions. And, you know, nothing against everybody that I was working for, but, you know, me and a couple of, you know, back then, we kind of got together and we're like, so they want us to do this the way that they used to do that. Hmm. Yeah, no, we got to rewrite the whole thing, which is what everyone does nowadays anyways. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of part of the, I was going to say, it's it's almost part of the JPL culture a little bit is that you do come in and even though you might be sort of shown like, well, this is how we do it now. There's almost something, you know, fundamental about like, yeah, but we also want to see if you can, you know, change it or improve it. I mean, I think that that's part of why folks come here is that opportunity of saying, okay, I understand we do things like this now, but could we be doing it better or differently? Well, and if you think about the massive amount of data, say, say it's just images, like, can you imagine manually trying to go through any of that stuff that's, that's beyond daunting of a task? 100%, 100%, Lenny and Patricia. And so basically, the thing I would say related to that is <laughs> the JPL culture is to look at problems that I would say both easy and hard, but to look at the hard problems. And I'd say the differentiator for JPL is we look at the hard problems and solve them in very, very novel ways. Mm -hmm. It's the easy problems that we look at that we solve in no novel ways that we're going to forget about. <laughs> you know, like, you know, talking about rewriting databases or email systems and, you know, old yeah. programming languages like LISP. That is something that's a badge of honor that we all wear. But at the time, we looked at a hard problem that was happening in the world mm -hmm, around us, right. and we we did. We were part of a generation of people that first decade that I was working on where everyone became a sensor, where we developed a new novel, I would say, system and architecture uh, for ground data system processing, which is basically processing the data, what's since been downlinked from, you know, either the near-Earth satellite or the um, deep space satellite, you know, that goes through a process of downlinking, bringing the data down. Once it gets to the ground, JPL is one of, I would say, 10 centers in the world that does an amazing and is relied upon by both the U.S. and our international partners to process that data. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? It means it takes taking raw telemetry, voltages, you know, things from instruments and turning it into measurements, uh, imagery that you could look at, you know, either visually, optically or, you know, with other types of analyses. So you can build maps, so you can understand what measurements, what types of questions we're trying mm -hmm. to answer, either in the context of of earth science or the origins of the universe, astronomy, things like that. So yeah, in that first in that first decade, three earth science missions all looked the same. And, and me and my team, which I had built a team by then because you can't do it all on your own. And JPLers are amazing. And we want to mush us all together and work together and, and all that great stuff. Our team built an architecture that was reused on OCO, the Orbiting Carbon Observatory, the NPP, which was the NPOS preparatory project, Sounder PEAT mission. Sounder is an instrument that does atmospheric soundings. PEAT was a product evaluation and testbed element. And I can keep going. I'm um, very <laughs> impressed right now that you remembered all of that. I'm like, holy moly, he's got those down. Lainey and Patricia told me, expand the acronyms and the acronyms will be expanded. And the last one was Soil Moisture Active Passive, mm -hmm. this MAP mission. And so these yeah. were like three... Next generation Earth science uh, missions that all kind of met that criteria. Lots and lots more data, faster, manage it more, and send it to more people. And so, yeah, we we built a system that was reused across all of those projects. And so, like one of the the key things, you know, we were sort of thinking about and talking about at the time. You know, JPL didn't have, I'd say. Oh, by the way, who else was dealing with big data at the time? Google, 
the early, you know, the early social right. media companies, Facebook, Twitter, I think, started in 2006. So guess what? They all had everyone's a sensor. You all have you don't need a you know big instrument flying on a satellite. You've got your phone, mm-hmm. you know, and everything. Take a bunch of pictures, take a bunch of audio recordings and hey, upload them. And so at the time, they were taking more data than us. They were uploading it faster, and they were solving similar problems to us. The difference was they had 1,000 people working on a single feature, and we had 10. <laughs> and so <laughs> and so we looked at that, and we're like, we wish we had 1,000 people, but, you know. The... But you, you talk, so you talked a little bit about, again, sort of this idea of like open source community, right? So how um, even the work that your team was doing, as small as it might be, was really contributing to that other larger community of folks from industry, right, that were trying to, um, you know, create the software, build this code. Can you talk a little bit about kind of like how that came about? When, when did that come about, this concept of like open open source community. 100%. And that's exactly what happened, Patricia. What happened was you had all these other companies, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, Google, and they had lots more people than us. And they were building similar capabilities than us. And we weren't, that wasn't the only concept. It wasn't just us, NASA, you know, NASA, DOD, government. They were all doing the same thing. More data, more, you know, more management, send it to more people. And um, at the same time, there was this I'd say well-established notion of these sort of open source and other communities that were starting to kind of become more critical and important, I would say, in that era. What they became was really clearinghouses where it didn't matter where you worked uh, at any of these companies and things like that, but you could actually kind of collaborate with people who you otherwise wouldn't uh, to basically build software that you all, like a common software that you all shared together um, and then customize and adapted for your specific, you know, verticals and, and means and things like that. And so, yeah, like I looked, our teams here looked at, at JPL, we looked at, you know, again, the disparity in the amount of resources that we could deploy. And being JPLers, we said, why don't we work together? Mm-hmm. And the way to do that is to participate in these open source communities. So we got heavily involved in places like uh, the Apache Software Foundation, which at the time was building all the next generation of big data software uh, to manage this information, in which the principals of this, who are providing a lot of the funding and other resources in a very permissible, usable way, was places like Twitter and Facebook and things like that. And you know, we were we were blessed to have the benefit to work and partner right. and establish, I would say, partnerships with these people that not only helped JPL build these capabilities out, we leveraged basically, um, you know, exponential, you know, growth and and. If you read books on building exponential organizations, this is what you have to do. No one organization has all the resources, right. you know, and, and this is common. This is a very big thing in this decade and, you know, other things. Partnering together, working together to build these exponential organizations. So what JPL did is we leveraged, we leveraged the resources and power of Twitter, the resources and power of Facebook, you know, all of these places, Google, that were building out these capabilities for even in some cases, much faster velocity, much more volume of data and adapted it to our particular scientific needs. And the way we did it is through these open source foundations. So, I mean, Apache was one. JPLers helped be part of the leadership of the Eclipse Foundation. People like Jeff Norris here, Dave Mittman, you know, um, these are some of our, you know, some of these folks are here and and some of them, you know, aren't. They've gone on to, you know, their next things. But yeah, those people, you know, so JPL started to kind of make the strategic decision to kind of get involved 
in these organizations to leverage and build kind of common software to advance our missions and things like that. Got it. They figure it out. You, know, you can't do it with just a team of 10, but there's these communities out there that you can bring in. Got 100%. But, the, uh, but would you say like that's how some of the your, your projects really impacted humanity and, you know, the, the public interest in a lot of really, really big ways? Yeah, I, I would definitely say that, Lainey. I would say that when you're standing in the room next to people who are building the technology that powers 53% of the internet and, you know, you're basically working with them in all sorts of different verticals, that same technology and other projects were being used, for instance, to do the next programming languages that enabled, you know, more development, or they were being used to, for instance, study cancer research. And, you know, they were being used to catch bad guys and, and others, you know, with the Department of Defense, like all of that, um, you know, and, and obviously we have our own national interest things here. You know, our thing is space. <laughs> we like space and the earth and everything else. Yeah, we like earth too, I feel <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, uh, you, you know, know it's kind of a big deal. Earth, yeah. I mean, earth is kind of a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and earth is a planet, right? I mean, we didn't... I, I, hear, I hear that it is. We didn't cancel that like we did Pluto, <laughs> you know. Or... Not yet. <laughs> don't talk about Pluto. <laughs> I don't know. If there's some sort of galactic form. <laughs> we don't talk about Pluto. Taking applications for the next planet to cancel. So, so actually, we are, we're kind of merged into this topic of sort of like larger interests. So at some point in kind of like your second um, decade here at JPL, you start, you do start kind of building interest in some of these big federal organizations to provide funding for the work that you were doing because they saw, right, that importance, that this wasn't just about software that could, you know, capture data that's coming from a spacecraft. Like, that wasn't all it could do. So maybe... If you could talk to us a little bit about how you started operating like a startup again and getting funding from out there from from, from some of these big organizations. Yeah, 100%. The, the way I kind of talk about that, Patricia, is I say, you know, the first 10 years you learned kind of how to, it was just a wild ride. And it's a bathtub time machine. Um, fighting the dinosaurs, <laughs> you know, fighting the dinosaurs. Fighting the yeah, dinosaurs, yeah. growing in the Cretaceous, um, you know. Doing building dinosaurs. Um, we you learn everything that is wrong that you would want to change and make better and do better the next time, which is the founder story, right? Mm -hmm. You know, for any startup. But then you know, as you're kind of walking around, you know, with your hand out, you know, after you bought your island, we didn't buy the islands here, but um, you know, it's it, supposed it, to be secret, Chris. <laughs> we don't talk about the island. <laughs> Riding around with your with your hand out, you know, for the next thing you want to do, you realize the people you're asking, you know, hey, databases are important, or you know, whatever. That's oversimplifying, but that's kind of what we right. do. It's like you're the database people. Um, and they say, you know, we really want to drive a huge steel rod into Mars and measure Mars quakes. That's important to us. We're going to give you $2.5 billion for that or whatever. And that database thing, you can have 25K, you know, for it because it's a database. That's easy, right? You, you learn that real quick and that doesn't that doesn't work out so well. And, you know, uh, so for me, you know, in the computer science area, so what we, like you correctly said, Patricia, is we realized at the time there are other parts of the government that said databases were important and computers are important. And so we walked around with our hands out to them. And, you know, so happened around the time, you know, it was, I think it was the second, it was, yes, it was, it was the first entering the second term of the Obama administration. Um, there was an initiative called the Big Data Initiative. 
And they basically, you know, the president administration pointed their hands at federal agencies and they said, hey, drum up money. Because you know what? Like all the stuff that JPL and, and you know Chris and others and, and even outside industry did to manage all that data, they we learned a lot and we think we could do it better. And actually open source and all that was a key element, you know, of that uh, big data initiative because they said, you know, instead of the typical way in the government um, where we fund companies that are near Washington, D.C. or whatever that tend to get the same funding over and over again, you know, for projects that they slightly adapt or do in other ways, um, you know, or whatever. And so the, the government, like the feeling there is that these companies, you know, keep getting funding over and over again. The lesson learned, you know, in this was, hey, you know, if you fund the community, if you fund these open source clearinghouses and you store the resultant work there, um, then whether it's, you know, the National Security Agency, whether it's NASA, the National Aeronautic Space Administration, whether it's commercial industry, they can all pull from that central clearinghouse, take that government-funded open source, you know, big data management and other software, visualization, whatever, take that software and then adapt it in their own ways and then pay for that themselves. But the common reusable mm -hmm. part could be there. And so that was the big data initiative that started in 2012. I got involved with that. They had a lot of government funding to kind of do that. And in that second decade, the first five years, um, was a big focus on building a very large, I'd say multifaceted, very diverse portfolio across the government um, in basically doing analytics, data management, data science, data visualization better, and, and doing it in a way in which we store the resultant software in these open source foundations so that others could kind of take and customize it. And so, yeah, I, I got involved um, in particular very deeply with, uh, you know, partnering with an organization called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And it's not just like they give you money and go off and only solve space things. You know, at, at JPL, we have to make right. the case anytime we do not what's called non-NASA work. JPL is a special place. Let's, uh, let's back it up here for just a sec. Um, JPL is NASA's only national lab or federally funded research and development center. That's special. Um, the Department of Energy, DOE, um, the Department of Defense, they have dozens of these. You know, in DOE, they've got Brookhaven, Argonne, Lawrence Berkeley. DOD has MITRE, Draper. Or what, NASA has one, JPL. And if you're going to be a national lab, you have to do first-of-a-kind things. Does that meet the definition of what we've been talking about? I think so. Um, our first-of-a-kind things that we operate on behalf of the federal government for the world, uh, we manage the Mars program. Uh, Elon and Bezos and all the rest of them, they haven't, you know, that's not commercialized yet. And so we do that. Mm -hmm. And then we also operate the Deep Space Network, these three amazing 70-meter dishes in Canberra, Australia, Madrid, Spain, and in Goldstone, California. If you're in Southern California on the way to Vegas, I'll let you know. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, those are our national lab, national priority things. And so because we're national lab, we're NASA's only national lab, just kind of bringing it back to the conversation, we can do what's called non-NASA work. We can do work for other parts of the government of the national interest. That is within our role. And we know, you know, maybe 10, 15% of the lab's work tends to be that. But anytime we do that, it's got to apply back to space. So when we had our hands out and said, yeah, we'll take, you know, DOD or DARPA money or whatever to do this, it's got to have a space application. So for us, that's managing science data better, organizing it, searching it, finding it. But for DARPA, that was, for instance, 
help us stop, find, root out human trafficking. And um, so just kind of getting into that in 2014, we became part of the DARPA Memex program. Memex's goal was to build the next generation of search and the internet because in this second decade of sort of innovation that I've been so lucky to be a part of, um, in that first decade, more data, more everything, whatever. In this decade, it was, okay, there's more data. And so because there's a lot of needles in that haystack, bad stuff can happen in the haystack. And there are right. bad needles. And some of those needles are trafficking people. They're selling uh, illegal weapons. They're doing counterfeit electronics and things like that. And they're even happening. That haystack is not being put in the typical haystack place of the internet. We actually made a new dark internet called the dark web. Um, and well, we didn't. Yeah, yeah. We, well, right. I, I didn't. I, I was going to say, uh, JPL. It's, it's, it's the collective <laughs> world we. It's the collective So you we. got, your work helps sift through those haystacks, right? So regardless of what they are, right? Yeah, yeah. It can help kind of find that information. Totally. That's right, Patricia. So this dark web is started. Actually, the government and uh, the Navy helped to create it. Uh, they did. And they did it for communications purposes, uh, for secure private communications. They built a protocol called the Onion Router or TOR. Uh, and the Onion mm -hmm. Protocol, uh, you know, which is this very anonymized way of sending data, sending messages, you know, browsing, finding stuff. And, yeah, it was originally a government thing. And uh, basically the bad guys, and I guess I should say gals who found it. But, uh, yeah, so basically on that, um, we had bad stuff happening. And, and, and so um, the government, you know, you might have seen in this, you know, applicable for the audience, uh, you know, he's read the Snowden Leaks. One of the things that in those leaks that happened, Edward Snowden, uh, when he revealed kind of these these government documents or whatever, one of the things that came out was that even the NSA couldn't hack its own you know protocol. It couldn't get access if there was Tor and Onion routing. It was so good that you know we couldn't the government U.S. government couldn't get into it, and that was revealed in the leaks. And so because of that, the government also didn't have a capability to search it find information on it and whatever, and they really needed it. There was no Google for the dark web. So that was the purpose of DARPA Memex. It was to help build that. What are the advantages of that, you know, for JPL, just, you know, in case people were wondering, for us, part of it was, okay, instead of finding, say, images of people being trafficked or different, I would say, multimodal content, we were moving into this era of not everything just being, like search engines, not just looking for text. Um, what was happening on the dark web was there were pictures there were videos, there was early short form audio content, you know, other things. And, you know, even though the big search engine companies like Google and, you know, Bing at the time had the capability to access and search that content, it wasn't, to be honest, in their bottom line to do that. Right. And, and the government approached them and said, hey, you know, would you like to be part of this? They said, we really support your mission. We really agree with everything you're doing. We'll provide, you know, sweat equity, but no, we're not going to provide resources to kind of do this. And so the government said, this is worth this $100 million investment. We need this. Because the other trick at the time was that cryptocurrency was allowing uh, the bad guys and gals to hide their payments for all the transactions for this bad mm -hmm. stuff that was happening. And uh, the government also helped to kind of contribute you know, to that too. And so you had this sort of wild west of people transacting, doing bad things, mm -hmm. and then us not being able to find it and law enforcement and anything. And so right. we got involved in that. JPL has been involved in the development. We talked about this a little bit offline in, in some of the, the show prep, but JPL has been involved in the development of all these amazing IT computer science things. You know, Larry Wall was here 
Uh, Larry Wall invented Perl, the practical mm-hmm. extraction and reporting language, which is one of the key languages, programming languages. Did you know that was invented at JPL? Mark Adler, who was at JPL for many years, invented LZW compression, uh, which is the zip compression that's used. You know, why would we need that? We're sending data to Mars. You know, we need to compact it. Well, lots of that happened. So did you know JPL helped contribute to building the first search engine of the dark internet, the dark web, and the deep web, you know, at the time? We helped contribute to this so that law enforcement could intervene, that they could um, basically find what was happening fast enough that they could save people, stop human trafficking, find shipments of illegal weapons, and so on and so forth. And so basically the thing I can kind of at least state, I can't talk about everything related to it, but the thing I could state is JPL data contributed to the arrest of 400 um, uh, the arrest of 400 um, predators within the context of, of human trafficking. 400 That's arrests. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Why Why do you think that JPL doesn't get a lot of credit for some of this work? Like, you know, when we go to Mars and we land on Mars, it's like this big thing, you know, and that, that's a lot of our, our flagship missions, which is, of course, great. But I feel like there's so much of this type of work that also happens that starts at JPL and really sets the foundation from for incredible work that then is done by other organizations or the government. And yeah, I feel like it's kind of not not, not talked about that much. Yeah, yeah, Patricia. And uh, the thing I would say is that, um, you know, J- th- this podcast is, you know, it's it's ground zero, um, you know, for this. But it's it's storytelling. A lot of it, a lot of it is storytelling. And, and I think a lot of people like look at JPL and they're like, Mars rovers, yeah. yeah right. You know, deep space telecommunications, you know, and, and, and sometimes all that. not even sometimes not even that. I know. I know. <laughs> sometimes it's just Mars. I'm really totally, totally going to get uh, what, what they call it clowned, you know, for, you know, oh, look at this nerd. He's talking about deep space communications. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> that, never, that, that is who we are, though. <laughs> it's OK. Never, it's OK. Would never happen at JPL. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I mean, some of this stuff, it just rolls off the tongue. And, and then the other stuff, it's we need to do, I think, and, and we are, we're, we're getting better at this, telling better stories, mm-hmm. you know, about mm-hmm. about what we did kind of related to that. So I, I think I think we could do a better job there. It's really meaningful. And, yeah. It's yeah. Okay. I, I was going to ask you, I mean, Chris, knowing that the, the work that you were a part of here at JPL to help create this way to search the, the dark web that contributed to these 400 human trafficking arrests, I mean, how does that feel? You're, you know, you're, you're like an Avenger. You're you're like a like a Marvel. What were we talking about? Marvel superheroes. Marvel superheroes. <laughs> yes. We were totally talking about that in short form. And you know, Moon Knight's awesome right now. And episode five. I haven't just watched dropped. it. I keep hearing about it. Oh, it's good. Oscar Isaac's. I feel like I'm amazing. a little jaded by. I am such a fan. I fanboy. do like Oscar Isaac. He's amazing. Okay. Yeah. He's. I mean. Anyways, watch Oscar Isaac. Hi, Oscar. Um, no, but, uh, you know, I know you're listening. Um, we'll give you a tour yeah, at the lab. Can we say that? <laughs> Oscar Isaac, do you want to come to uh, JPL? We'll give you a private tour. tour. There you go. That's right. And I will just stand in the background snapping photos with my aides. Um, but uh, no, so the thing I'll say kind of related to that, I'll answer that very personally, Lainey. Um, I have a daughter. Uh, she's almost five. And... Every time I think about what we did on DARPA Memex, it makes me smile related to that because, um, you know, before it was a bus station ad or a rail station ad of, you know, the, the, the you know, females with her hands cuffed that you see a lot now. And it's sort of become that thing, you know, five years ago, before anyone could talk about it, you know, we knew we were we were making a difference. Um, and so it's very meaningful to me in that context. We have this conversation here at JPL a lot because 
particularly nowadays, right? There's all these conversations about the war for talent, particularly in some of this aerospace industry. Uh, and folks, you know, going to work for a private industry versus a place like JPL. And I think something like that's really meaningful because it connects back to like the original purpose of why someone chooses to work here, you know, and it's because of the ability to have incredible impact to things that are greater than just, you know, the latest app or, you know, even the latest spacecraft. It's what legacy are you leaving behind? And I think that that's, it's important to call that out as what motivates folks to, to come to JPL and stay at JPL because their work will last and will have an, an impact globally and beyond. So um, I'm glad that you answered that personally because a lot of the work that's done here is personal. It's, it's, um, it's deeply personal to me. And, and to be honest, you know, and again, everybody can't see the emotion I would say in this room right now, you, you know, and it's, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting a little, you know, chills here, but, um, Everyone that's in this room right now, that's recording this, that's listening, everybody that I walk around this beautiful 144-acre campus or whatever gets, th that's why you're here. Yeah. You want your hair to tingle or, you know, with, actually, not everyone has hairy arms like me. But anyways. Um, <laughs> Again, we, we want to be inclusive. We, we, we understand the we sentiment. Wanna, we we want to be inclusive to we, everyone. We want to be inclusive. We want to be inclusive. And, and <laughs> the, you know, everything has to relate to movies. So I'll give a Matrix sort of revelation to this too. Um I think a lot of people like walk around and you think that the spoon doesn't bend. You can, the spoon can bend, make the spoon bend. And, uh, you know, a lot of JPLers have that mentality, mm -hmm. make it bend to what, you know, is important to us and tends to be what's important to here in the institution has all of these importance in a national interest and, and everything else. There was a, there was an article in uh, Popular Mechanics, I think some, some years ago, and in the article, it's about JPLers, and it talked, there was one, one story there that I thought was really, totally reminded me of what you just, of the spoon bending. Um, there's a sign in the freeway when you come to JPL that says, has an arrow, just like a regular freeway sign that says, this way to space, right? Mm -hmm. And... They talked about how the difference between JPLers and some other folks out there is that JPLers will see the sign, laugh, kind of chuckle, <laughs> this way to space, freeway sign. And then they'll pause and go, what would that look like? What would a, what would a sign to space actually look like? Totally. And then they go into their office and they're like, think it out. And they actually try to figure out what would, what coordinates, what would the sign, what would be the size of the sign. And that's the, I think that's the spirit is where folks might say, well, that's impossible. That can't be done. Here, it's like you, you maybe start out that way and then you go, hmm, but could I? <laughs> yes, yes. And then diabolical finger clicking exactly. on face, you know, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Mm. Evil. <laughs> so, and then so, they ask for a wham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a work authorization, authorization memo. memo. <laughs> you know, so, we'll, we'll get into that in a, in a different podcast. Yeah, so a different. <laughs> and so that sign, um, I've got a note from our producer here, is that is on Oak Grove coming in with an arrow up that says space. Oh, so, it so it's, as, meant to put, uh, it's meant to... Point up. up. Oh, I thought. See, I thought it was meant to point at JPL. 
Yeah, I was yeah. I was trying to remember exactly where the sign was too, and then all I remembered was the Iggy Azalea video was like recorded on the 210 freeway right by JPL2. I didn't know if you knew that. I but did now not you know do. that. No, no. That, that is, now we're also getting pop culture. <laughs> Today I learned <laughs> so stuff with that. So maybe we'll have to, to you know to take a picture of that sign and put it in the show notes later. So, um, Chris, we like to each ask each of our guests about their own personal EDL to JPL. And for any listeners out there who are unfamiliar with that term, EDL stands for Entry, Descent, and Landing of a Spacecraft as We Land on Another Planet. So missions work for years on this part. This is when we know whether we fail or succeed on the landing of a spacecraft. So we'd like to talk with you about your personal EDL, your Entry, Descent, and Landing, to your career here at JPL. So how did you decide on your entry part to pursue STEM? What inspired you? Kind of what was that, you know, how did you get into what you do? What led you here? Yeah, um, it, it was sort of a, it was an indirect journey, Lenny. Um, you know, so so I grew up in Santa Clarita, California. Shout out to Santa Clarita. Shout out to Santa Clarita. Allison <laughs> Felix, hey. Um, yeah, no, uh I grew up in Santa Clarita, about an hour north of LA, and you know, I, I, um, again, like I contact about, you know, had a lot of love in our family. We were like, I'd say middle class until about, um, I think when I was twelve, my dad lost his business, and we went from like living in the nicer part of Santa Clarita to basically living in a mobile home in the not so nice part, and, um, you know, whatever. Everybody has their story, you know, and again, like lots of love in my family. And I had a brother, a mother, a grandmother that lived with us and my father. And but I knew that I wanted to get out of Santa Clarita <laughs> and um, just do something different. Uh, it was a different place at the time. I'd say it's much more diverse now, but back then it wasn't as much. And, you know, we had Magic Mountain, which was great. We even have the Valencia Town Center, which is a mall that they have there now like that was made when I was like 15 and, and whatever. But. I don't think that's the flex you think it is, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that you said flex. And I think I just got pwned. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. You pwned me. I'm sorry. I've never been there, actually. So <laughs> my, totally pwned me. I'm sorry, my, Santa Clarita. My, I apologize. <laughs> my 11-year-old would say, you just got burned. Yeah, so I, that's made a comeback. Don't cancel oh, us. Burn. I'm totally canceled. Um, no. So, okay. We're going to we're gonna get the show back on track. I um, <laughs> so I grew up there. I wanted to get out, and so yeah, how I get out. Um, I wasn't super into computers or anything. I was more into sports. Uh, I played high school football. I was five nine. Everyone else, junior year, became like six two, and they all played. I was like, ah, this isn't gonna be me. I'm not big enough, tall enough, whatever, anything enough. But I. I need to invest in my mind. And so my trick was that if you, I wasn't playing sports, I w got on the yearbook staff, uh, went into journalism, and was Shout like... Shout out. <laughs> I'm a, I was a journalism oh, major. Like, I, I chuckles. Yeah. I was a journalism <laughs> major, too. Shout out to journalism. Uh, you know, love journalism. And uh, yeah, I went on the yearbook staff, uh, sports. And that was my deep, deep, I'd say, exposure beyond like an Apple IIe. And yes, look that up and Google it. And a Mac Classic, which were my, were my only computer exposures before then. Senior year of high school, you know, rewind the clock. This is like 1998. Um, got on a little bit better Macs and whatever. Adobe Illustrator started to like learn about, mm -hmm. you know, uh, technology and computers and stuff. And so 
Uh, I got a 4.8 at Saugus High School, and the only reason I didn't have a 5.0 is they didn't have honors football and uh, well, they <laughs> and, or yearbook. And uh, so I invested in my mind. It tended to work out. Got to University of Southern California. I liked their colors. That was and their their sports teams. USC was known as a party school at the time. Shout out USC, but uh, you know, or whatever. It wasn't wasn't known as, I would say, the academic, you know, leader that it is today. And it is like whatever US uh, News and World Report top 25 or whatever school. Um, and, but back then, you know, it was more known, I'd say for athletics, which was fine by me, <laughs> you know, cause I, again, and everybody in Santa Clarita went to UCLA or Cal State Northridge. And so I just, I don't know, it's like to be different in things. And so I was like, I want to go somewhere else and I couldn't afford it too, which was amazing. And so I'm still paying those student loans off today, but, um, that is a conversation also for another <laughs> podcast. Cause please cancel our student debt anyways. Um, but, uh, you know, shout out to cancel student debt. Um, but, uh, anyways, uh, regardless, uh, got to USC and had a big imposter syndrome, you know, when I got there, uh, it wasn't just everybody driving BMWs or, you know, telling their story of where they came from and it was different than mine, but got there and had a little bit of imposter syndrome. So, uh, my, uh, entry into JPL was that's how I got to basically staying up in the computer lab at night, searching for jobs and trying to find somewhere to do besides work study, <laughs> you know, at the time. And, um, really invested a lot and to get past that imposter syndrome and believe that I should have been there. And that led me into the computer lab at night, late my freshman year, when back then we used to go on these things called message boards. Hey, cool. that is cool. <laughs> you know, and I'm not talking about like fortune or, you know, whatever the bad ones, you know, this was a job board. This, and which one was it? Was, was it, it, was it the, like a BBS system? A it was a total, system. it was a total BBS system. system. USC had a BBS bulletin board system. It was a job posting for like USC people. I was in the Salvatore computer lab, you know, at night. And yeah, Dr. Rob Raskin from JPL made a posting. It was for earth science. I don't even remember, but it said programmer database. Uh-huh. And I was like, I can do that. And yeah, so I interviewed with Dr. Raskin and he said, you're great. I like you. And he said, come back in two or three months. And I did. And he said, oh, yeah, I think this job's going to be here. Come back in two or three months. And I did. And uh, I think on month six, I got it. And I got to JPL, had no clue anything about JPL, anything. Yeah, I was going to ask because we have a lot of folks that know about JPL and, you know, dream of working, you know, grow up dreaming working at JPL or on NASA missions. But you just... No, no idea what JPL was or what they did. Totally, Patricia. And I worked odd hours. So because I was still at USC at the time, I would show up at like 4 p.m., you know, and uh, this was into, uh, you know, right near Building 300, which is right where it used to be our uh, physical oceanography data center, uh, data active archive center or DAC. Uh, It was in building, I think that's 324 or whatever, right by 300. But it was then and I came at odd hours. So when I came, most of the regular JPLers were leaving. And so I would work at night, you know, in whatever odd, you know, APT, academic part-time or intern hours. And uh, yeah, so then, you know, again, I tell people like the story, it works for this is like year three or four of doing that. <laughs> and I won't even tell you about how within the first like three months I came, my project was canceled and I had to work on something else. But uh, that's the JPL way is JPLers, you know, show up for each other. And Rob found me, you know, some other work and whatever. So I just happily worked on that. But uh, my JPL moment was year three or four into being a JPL, and it was those two twin rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. Mm-hmm. The ones, um, these are the ones just for the, you know, I'd say the public audience. These are the ones with solar power, little wings mm-hmm. on them. Yeah. They were sent within, I'd say, nine months of each other. 
and yeah, uh, watching that, watching those rovers land, um, getting ready to help contribute to data systems on the PDS, uh, planetary data system, and other things that would process the data. But watching those rovers land, watching Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governator, shake hands with, with my friends in Mission Control and be like, oh my God, <laughs> I worked there. I was getting married at the time. I just bought a house. I bought my first big screen TV, got my full-time job at JPL. It was like, Psst. Yeah, JPL. I love it. And that was my JPL moment. That's interesting. That's awesome because, you know, you're entering your descent to JPL pretty much. And so now you've landed at JPL. This is the landing portion. You're here. You know, you've you've got your full-time job. You've, you know, the, the, you know, what did you call it? Arnold Schwarzenegger. The the governor. You saw the governor. (laughs) The governor. Thank you. You fought some dinosaurs. (laughs) You fought some dinosaurs. The predators showed up. I mean, we took care of them too, you know. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely, right? Um, So what is in store for your the future of your role here, JPL? Like what's next in your role and how you lead um, those efforts as the chief innovation technology officer? I probably butchered that and we can go back later. But... um, you know, what are you excited about to work on next? That you can tell us, right? <laughs> and, uh, we can't spill any any secrets. Yes, uh, we have uh, we have an explicit. There's actually somebody. Okay, okay, I won't say it. There's someone standing over me right now. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> we can't see them though because they're sorry. augmented reality. He can only see with his glasses, his smart glasses. We're sorry. Um, no, Lainey, uh, I, the things that excite me, some of them are, you know, what you hear about in the public discourse. I'm really excited right now about virtual reality, XR, um, you know, multifaceted, you know, multi-reality. Um, getting on headsets, uh, looking. So, you know, the, the, I'll tell you there's a reason there's a reason for that. And so we have a project here at JPL. So we have a saying, welcome to our universe. Our project is called Welcome to Our Metaverse. And it's a play off of that. And there's a reason. So, you know, the last 24 months have been hard for everybody. It's been hard for us. Shout out to being physically here at JPL. Yeah. And, yes, and we are all here in this space here today. <laughs> so it's exciting. We are here in the space recording. And it wasn't like that. And so during that time, we wanted to experience JPL. You know, we were all, you know, since March 20, working from home, you know, and all that. So in that time, we wanted to experience JPL. So I picked up, we got a um, we got a Quest 2 headset. Uh, you know, we started, part of my role, remember, is looking externally, our division, looking externally at the tech trends, kicking the tires, trying them out for JPL. Got one of these headsets. Um, did play a little Star Wars in the beginning, uh, you know, on the Same. weekends. On the we, weekends. Won't, we won't tell. We won't tell HR. <laughs> <Yes>. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, you know, but then, but then after it was handed to me, I said, well, what can we do with this for JPL? Can we meet in here? Can we interact? And as it turned out, there was a number, there's a whole ecosystem. This is another JPL sort of mentality. Although there are plenty of things that we decide that we need to build ourselves, we also do a pretty good job here saying, you know what, they did a good job of it. Let's figure out how to use it. And that was exactly the mentality on this platform. So many apps. What we had to figure out how to do was how to interact in that those apps in the JPL way. As it turns out, we're a data-driven organization. 70% of the conversations that we have here are conversations like this that involve no ITAR, international traffic and arms regulations that doesn't involve the 5% of the work that we do here that's classified, you know, at JPL. So it's talkable. Yeah, we can talk about it. And so given that 70% of those conversations happen in that way and are either between a direct report and their manager or a team, you know, that's not having those types of conversations, we felt we could take, you know, the two-dimensional Zoom or WebEx type of conversations and bring them into three-dimensional VR world and have those meetings there 
ship units out. We bought dozens of these units. We started to get them out to our different teams, kick the tires on MC, what worked, what didn't. I didn't get one, Lainey. Did you? I, did well, you mine one? was a Christmas like... gift from my father. So no, no, I didn't get one. <laughs> um, that is a perfect uh, That is a perfect segue into the part where everything after this is classified, so I have to leave. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, I got <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, uh, I'm just kidding. Michael Kimes, if you're out there in the ether sphere, please talk to Patricia and Lainey and, and get them a... Uh, <laughs> That's VR. okay. I tried a VR set for the first time literally a month ago uh, when we were at a conference, and it was wild. Like, I, it, it's kind of trippy. Like, you almost have to take some seasickness oh. <laughs> medication yeah. before you use it. But. 100%. 100%. Everybody has that sort of vertigo when they start, and and we did. And, and then, by the way, what you just said, Patricia, is exactly the types of things that we want to figure out. Mm-hmm, right. You know, like, how, does this work? How long can we use it for? And all that. Then the other thing that we did, um, back to your question, Lainey, is that we started to meet in a digital forest or mm-hmm. at the beach and all those, you know, whatever you can do on WebEx and Zoom, you can do in the VR world. And mm-hmm. that's cute and that's fun. But where it became JPL was mm-hmm. we said, how do we scan, I don't know, the room that we're recording in this on mm-hmm. or the larger room, Von Karman Auditorium? Mm-hmm. How do we scan familiar JPL places that are unique to JPL? that are places we would normally take either the public or ourselves and meet. And so as it turns out, there's, um, again, how do we use commodity commercial software or hardware to do this? So Apple has iPads. iPads are usable. You can buy them at JPL. Those iPads have on them a commercial scale LiDAR, which is a like a radar type of instrument that, you know, you can bounce a signal off of objects and then give you mm-hmm. back sort of what's called the backscatter or the signature from them. That's very JPL, by the way. And we build and deal with LiDARs as well. But these Apple iPads have them on there, and there's a toolkit on it called ARKit. So what we did is we grabbed a bunch of Apple iPads, had the team go around and start to scan mm-hmm. JPL into the metaverse. So you're really in the metaverse, not just when you yourself take a picture in 3D and walk around and talk in a forest or on the right. beach, but when you do it and you're doing it in Von Karman Auditorium or you're doing it in Building 180, which is our director's building or right. you know things like that. And so that's what we did. And um, we've had a lot of good experience, a lot of good feedback. We started holding our all hands meetings in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then started to determine how JPL could deploy this at scale. So my goal, what the future is, the future is for me is that um, Patricia doesn't throw me under the bus the next time, and she's able to order one herself off the IT catalog and charge it back to her projects, um, you know, and, and all of that, that everybody can get one. <laughs> now you've given Lainey ideas here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and, and, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, telework is here to stay. JPL has a telework policy. Not all of our population will physically come back to JPL. And those that basically, you know, want to use or want to have the ability to do so, where if you're in, you know, you're doing some work remotely, you're in Tennessee, you're in Texas, you're wherever, you can slap on a headset, but you're actually at JPL. Yeah. Because you're mm-hmm. then seeing Von Karman Auditorium. So that's just that's just the way that people interact. So go ahead. So much about the culture of JPL is the spaces that 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 are at JPL that again you go out for a lunch break you go for a walk in between meetings and you get to come to the von Karman auditorium uh, and see an incredible array of models of the spacecraft that we're working on I mean I think that's part of what needs to be translated into a virtual environment for those folks that may work remotely most of the time and that m- maybe don't get to experience that we I think it 
it's huge for them to still feel connected to the culture, for them to be able to experience those physical spaces that mean so much um, for the employees here. So absolutely. I think you mentioned earlier, Patricia, that you guys are all about DE&I and mm -hmm. uh, diversity, you know, equity and inclusion. And this is a huge thing for DE&I. Because, you know, everything you read, the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, New York Times, they're basically saying, okay, look, you know, hybrid work, you know, remote work is here to stay. However, we need to be mindful when that happens to make sure that people feel included. Absolutely. And not just in synchronous meetings where we've determined we need to do synchronous work in this way and thus we need to call people together. However, WebEx, Zoom, VR, but also in the context of culture building. And, and I think so much of what you're talking about in the storytelling you guys are doing here on the show is a culture of JPL. And I think the thing we want everyone to realize is that that culture is, is dependent on the unique space. And we're not Google. We can't shed, we can't shed the lease to this place. You, you know, we, we, <laughs> yes. we, yeah, you know? no, but I, I, so I would add to that, though, yeah. that culture is more than four walls. 100%. Culture is more than just the geography. So while the spaces are important and they are meaningful, they're part of the culture, right? How do we, if we're really truly to transition into this virtual hybrid world, how do we make sure that we take those spaces outside of these quote unquote four walls? Because that's that's the only way that I think we're going to expand that culture. 100%. Right. Because so. and it all ties back to a lot of the things that you know we've said and talked about is also shared values. You know, share, shared impact. That's a big part of our culture. And then, you know, and then expanding that in, into showing and actually seeing that. I think that's one of the, the things about doing the VR stuff is that you can see it, that those shared values, that shared impact. Because walking with a colleague the other day, we were, you know, going between meetings. We saw somebody working on, you know, a robotic, you know, it was basically a robot and they were teaching it how to, to walk or see how it went over terrain. And, and you just stop and ask and say, okay, well, now why are you doing it? And they went in, they explained why they were doing it. And, and it was so open. It was this sharing of information and a purpose that was really impactful. And we walked away and we were like, dang, we love working here. Yeah. I think it's, it's, for me, it's about recognizing like the traditional ways that we've created impact and inclusion. And then now thinking about what does that look like? In, in an organization of the future. Yeah and, the, yeah. and I think those tools will be really important to make that transition. I oh. would be, I'd be remiss if I didn't get the word, you know, secret sauce in here. And basically I would say related to that, I think Patricia's point is that those four walls don't only need to be the four physical walls here yeah. and it could be the whole metaverse. Right. Yeah. I'd love, I'd love to have like a, a virtual buddy that maybe I could take along with me through smart glasses or some, yeah. some sort of experience the day that they're, you know, it's, it's kind of almost like a ride along you know, or tag along. I'll tell you, I've actually, I, some of my relationships with some of my peers and colleagues at JPL have absolutely increased over the hybrid period, just because all of a sudden, instead of having to go to each other's offices and we weren't in the same building, they could just send me a message, you know, on Slack or Jabber or one of these digital tools, right? And our relationships have even grown more through that ability of really easily transition to those to those virtual tools. So I'm excited about, you know, what's what's going to happen with the metaverse. I would be remiss not to say that, you know, if we're going to have workplaces in the metaverse, you, you may want to have some involvement from HR on policy. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably so. You know, what, what happens if something happens in the metaverse? I'm just kidding. <laughs>
That's right. If a tree falls in yeah. the metaverse, in the metaphorist, yeah, yeah. did anyone hear you know, it? Fall? What's the policy for the metaverse? You know, you know how it is at JPL. So I'm be like, well, you know, what's the policy if in the metaverse I do this and I do that? Well, I don't know. Do you need a wham for the metaverse? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> a wham, wham for, for the, the metaverse. metaverse. <laughs> I don't know. I think that has Let's... to be the cold open for this. You know? Yeah, a wham, wham for, for the, the metaverse. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> but I am excited about the possibilities that it opens for, for JPL. And, and to one day maybe transition that to, you know, could we walk around another planet and feel like we're there? You know? I think I think that's what you're what you're describing, Patricia, is the really almost like okay, your mind kind of explodes because the vertical the vertical uses for the metaverse is everything from traditional education and public outreach to walking around on other planets, which I think the external, you know, audience to JPL, everybody want to touch on this podcast on this story everybody that jpl wants to bring in the tent that traditional education public outreach but then your mind goes to you know laney was talking about having a buddy we can onboard people you know patricia you're talking about involving mm -hmm. hr there are people that because they're going to be hired full-time mm -hmm. remote or whatever and their regular place won't be here at jpl bring them You've never lived at JPL until you've virtually waited in line at the food camp. Bring them virtually with you, right? You know, and incentivize that them. Corn, that, you know? that, that pizza at the 303 cafeteria. No, the kettle uh, corn. Totally. It was worth the wait. 100%. Uh, we used to have noodles there, too. It's not just pizza. Okay. Noodles? I've never had noodles. <laughs> you never had noodles at the 303? At the 303 cafeteria? Oh, totally. Yeah. Don't I remember have... the stir fry. Stir fry was great. Stir fry 187. You can date right. yourself at JPL based on what food was Got served it. at what particular counter. And I'm totally not going to reveal what dates Patricia just revealed about herself. So. <laughs> <laughs> what about that third cafeteria whose number I don't even remember? The 190. The 190. On. Yeah. That, that to... one doesn't get that much love just because it's at the bottom of the hill. If you go there, you eventually have to come back up. And, you know. I can tell Patricia doesn't visit the credit union a lot because if you visited the credit <laughs> union, you would be all over that cafeteria, okay? So, um, so I, I think that the, the hey, thread there the is working at JPL, no. credit union. <laughs> <laughs> so the the thread there is that we, we we have options, we have lunch options, and everyone has really strong. I don't know. That Did you see how she pulled that leaning? Uh, wow! I like how out of all of that we've talked about, we came back so in the summary of our conversation, conversation. with Chris is that there is a lunch, lunch option. <laughs> Listen, chop no, chop here, people! Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Well, because food is a passionate topic, and it, and then you know we start weaving, you know, around, and then we're going to talk about eating in the metaverse, and I think there is a good question to leave it: is that uh, what's next for JPL in the metaverse? Chris Matman is going to be responsible for it. <laughs> he's going he's going to light our way at JPL and we're really excited about that. And so Chris, we want to thank you for joining us here today. It's been exciting. It's been educational. Chris, should someone come work here at JPL? One trillion thousand meme percentage. <laughs> you know, take the Homer Simpson meme where he folds into the 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 whatever the bush and reverse it. Yeah. Yep, yep. Make um, 100 Homer Simpsons come out of the bush, and the bush is actually JPL. Wow. That is amazing. It's, it's, a, it's a response I couldn't have anticipated, but now that I have it, Keeping you I, on your I'm toes. glad. Yeah, I'm glad that I have.
So again, we thank you. And we also want to thank our listeners because without you, none of this would be possible. Please be sure to subscribe on wherever you listen to podcasts. We put out a new episode of the season each week. And be sure to follow us on social media at NASA JPL Careers. And don't be afraid to dare mighty things from little to big things and explore our careers at jpl.jobs. We'll talk to you next time.